Hey, it's good to be back here today and just appreciate everyone who has been a part of this group. And we're almost a year into this now. And as I was thinking about how to start the year off, uh, a couple topics came to mind, but I thought today I would talk about five reasons why you should plan 12 months in advance for cover crops. And most people, farmers, educators alike, don't really have this mentality or this thought process in mind. And I, I, a lot of what I do, those of you who have been listening to some of my teaching and training, is as I address cover crop mindsets, how you think about cover crops, because I think that that is certainly fundamental and foundational to success. Now, the innovator type people, they naturally do this. They don't even think about some of these things. But the large majority of farmers basically want you to give them a recipe for how to do cover crops. And, and recipes are good, but if you use that analogy, any good chef probably doesn't adhere strictly to recipes. He puts his own nuances to it for the products he has available and so forth. But you get that analogy. It's a great analogy when we think about cover crops, that it's really about understanding how to apply the principles to your farm and your fields. And even on my small farm of 300 acres here, I have some different soil types and different uh, situations that some things are in cover crop management are done differently in other fields. So here's the things I have listed here t today to talk about five different things that uh, I thought about, plus I have a bonus one at the end. So I just want to get right into the whole concept, and as you may uh, guess, uh, the, my first, my first one is literally what I just said to learn all you can about what you intend to do. And one of the things nice about this time of the year is it's in the winter time and, uh, there's lots of meetings out there to attend. And for farmers, there's also a lot of time to spend on the internet or reading, talking to other people and so forth. So with that said, a few specifics to, to begin to hone in on. And, and number one I have there is to embrace the concept, to be all in. Again, the innovator type farmers and people, they, they inherently do this. They just do it. That's part of why they're innovators and what they do. But for farmers who are more that kind of second wave of the masses, if you will, they need to be helped with some of this thinking, way of thinking. So you, you don't become a cover crop farmer by just buying a cover crop, you know, seed and so forth. It's a whole bunch more than that. And that's what my, my point is here. If you're going to be successful, you need to be thinking way ahead of time. The other time, the other thing I have uh, is planning to allow time to scout. And what I, what I mean is, is throughout the year, uh, in your schedule of what you do as a farmer or as an educator to, to be able to learn, you have to see, you have to see what is occurring in the field. And we do this with our cash crops all the time, but in the same way, you need to do this with your cover crops. And part of that is planning to create that space, that amount of time to do that. 
Another thing in this category is have a plan B in place. What happens if the cover crop winter kills and you were expecting it to survive? Or you were expecting it to winter kill and it survived? What is a backup plan? Don't be caught with not knowing what to do. So kind of implied in that is, is have a team in place, the people you can call or contact. And for some, that's the neighboring farmer. For some, it's the local uh, dealer where they get their fertilizer from. They might have someone there that understands cover crops or whoever that may be. But to think about what if, the what if scenarios, what if it doesn't go as planned? And believe me, it will not go as planned sometimes. That's farming. But to think about that in the context of cover crops, it's, again, a part of that mindset of approaching it so that you will have success. And then also be ready for unexpected opportunity, and this is kind of the flip side of that. What if you have an, an early fall? For whatever reason, you can get your your cash crops off the field early. Maybe I have an opportunity now to plant a wider array of species, maybe some more legumes, and I wouldn't have had that opportunity under normal conditions. And so there's all different kinds of scenarios that can be unexpected opportunity. And sometimes unfortunate events like a severe hailstorm could come through. Oh, what could I do now because that crop has been, the cash crop was ruined, what cover crops could be planted there? So all this can be summed up, and if you've heard me say this many times, if you treat your cover crops like your cash crops, that is really kind of summarizing what, what I'm trying to say here. Because if you have that mindset going in, in an annual basis, 12 months in advance of when you're going to be planting cover crops, that is going to be foundational to your success. Uh, number two is to plan to widen your cover crop window. Probably should have wrote in there to intentionally plan. Cover cropping success just doesn't happen automatically. And yes, there are challenges to getting cover crops planted. In some areas, they are greater than others, depending on where you're located and your cropping sequence and all that. But there are a few things out there. Not all of these apply to everybody but I have seen and I'm continuing to see some creative ideas of what farmers are doing. I got a few listed here for some of the more popular ones right now, basically in a corn soybean uh, situation. The idea of interceding cover crops into standing corn predominantly certainly is catching on. And it certainly is most consistent above Interstate 80 if you're thinking in the context of the U.S. That's a general statement, but generally that is where we're seeing the most success. And for good reason, because those areas generally have a shorter fall anyway. And to be able to get a cover crop established and essentially go dormant over summer and then come to life in the late summer, early fall, by the time you harvest, you have a growing crop there that essentially you might have four weeks earlier than normal growth uh, would have been if you would drill afterwards. So even if you get into a wet period uh, in the fall, that cover crop can grow underneath the, the, the corn canopy very well because the leaves are breaking down and so forth. So interseeding has certainly been a way to increase uh, cover cropping. Limitations are seemingly being toward the south and also in drier climates. 
So as, as I said, all these have their pluses and minuses, but obviously if it's, if it's very dry and it gets too dry, your cover crop won't survive over the summer. That's, that is a risk that you can take. And, you know, you could go back and, and look, we have a couple of our topics are in interseeding if you're more interested in this. Uh, aerial or high clearance equipment to getting in before harvest, one to three weeks before harvest, four weeks, six weeks before harvest, it can vary. That has worked, but the limitation there is the weather needs to cooperate in getting a timely rain to germinate the seed that's laying on the surface. Uh, some of the negative things are you, you have to essentially seed a higher rate because you're not going to get as good of a seed germination as you would if you would drill it in. So this, this concept is certainly valid, but boy, I, I encourage trying to drill it in. You, you want to try to get it in the ground. And this is, again, why I'm saying uh, it's, 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 it's definitely valid, but understand the risks that are involved in doing this. Uh, one of the things I've, I heard a guy already uh, from Indiana who actually aerially seeded the day before he harvested his corn. Had a plane in the area, wasn't doing anything. And essentially what that did is most of those seeds, as the corn was harvested the following day, got to the ground. He had a pretty decent stand. I was actually in his field. We don't think of that very often. And essentially I would still recommend going in with a drill afterwards. But for him, in his situation, uh, that worked for him. The other thing that's gaining more attention, and this is more, we'll just say, on this, on this, on southern areas of using shorter season genetics in our cash crops. Uh, the genetics have certainly increased the past decade or two that yields are fairly decent if you get the right lines. And you have to work with your seedsman on this, but uh, intentionally planting 5 or 10% of your acres in shorter season genetics certainly is a, a strategy that needs to be done. And here again, this doesn't, you, you need to talk with your seed person in the fall to, to order these shorter genetics. Usually it doesn't, doesn't have to, but that's when you're ordering your corn usually. So again, one of the reasons why thinking ahead and literally that is 12 months ahead there. If you buy your corn in, in October in the fall, which some people do choose genetics that you could plant your cover crops then the following year. And then, Again, as far as just the, the bottom point, and it's kind of my picture here. This, this is actually a picture of me planting cover crops following the corn chopper. And, and the point is part of widening your cover crop window is following the harvester. Every day counts. In September, for most of us, one day is worth seven or eight days probably in October as far as the, the, the ability to grow the growing degree days and so forth. So again, always, always understand the challenge of having a person to operate this, but this is where some guys have either got in custom people to plant or they actually have good equipment and they like to or have the time to go out and plant. I know of several people who have done this. I actually have a neighbor who bought a drill just for this type of thing where he goes and uh, he is there as soon as possible. And so it's an opportunity for some farmers to use their equipment if they have the manpower. But I've also heard of, of retired farmers, even younger kids that are, you know, you want to get them some experience in a tractor. Uh, this is a good place for them to start. So just some ideas there on how to widen your planting window. Uh, moving along, the number three is adjusting herbicide programs 
as needed. And this is something that you need to be aware of as you plan to put cover crops into your system. I would say there's some help out there with the way some cover crops affect or some, some herbicides affect cover crops. Uh, but let's just start by burn down options here and and I'm not going to spend much time just you know, I think you know each of us know what what's out there pretty much there's there's two choices in that either glyphosate or ramoxone. Uh I want to spend a little more time on residuals, residual herbicides and how they may affect our cover crops that are planted in the fall. So I'll come in at the bottom here and talk about that, but I did want to mention rolling and crimping as well. In the context here of, uh, it's kind of insinuated here in a, under the herbicide program, where you you have to be careful on some herbicides that have long residuals. And there's not a lot out there that we seem to have problems with, there are some soybean herbicides that have been coming back in the context of dealing with resistant weeds that could hurt your uh, fall planted cover crop. There are so many different options out there. I'm not going to go into them here now. I would say you talk to your local rep or someone who understands, someone be- better yet, someone who has experienced this with cover crops. This varies greatly from soil type, organic matter, geographical region, precipitation, it's very site specific, I'll say, or maybe I should say geographical specific. So something you want to be talking about. And in an area where cover crops are being used and, and there's, you know, a significant number of it, these, these things kind of sort themselves out. It becomes local knowledge on what cover crops work well. But I also want to mention here that using cover crops as weed control in conjunction with your herbicide program is it's really the mindset that I have. Uh, herbicides are an expense. Cover crops are an expense. But if we can kind of use them to their best advantage in what they do, maybe back up a little bit here with rolling and crimping. I've been doing that for a long time. We have webinars on that as well. You can look at my, my mantra on that is a little herbicide goes a long way with rolling and crimping. Now, I can't roll and crimp all my acres, uh, but the ones I do – I've been using, definitely been using less herbicide on them. So, but using a cover crop like a radish that you get planted in the fall in decent time, it can simply outgrow winter annual weeds. I have heard this several times, farmers coming back and saying, you know what, had a great stand of radishes, no winter annuals, I saved a burn down. And that happens occasionally. So, it's just something that's out there, but again, there's so many variables in that that you can't count on that every single time. Part of understanding cover crops is is just being able to manage the nuances and and be and be able to manage the opportunities that come before you. Like I said, those of us who have done this a long time uh, realize that and understand that, and that's why I'm trying to emphasize here how you think about cover crops is the most important way to success. So uh, fall cover crop plans in conjunction with herbicides need to be considered. I, I would just simply recommend you need to consult with people in the local area that have experience on this to see what has been working or, or what you know they think might be working, but something that, that you could try. 
So number four is to adjust your fertility plan as needed. Now I'm gonna, some of the same uh, overarching principles apply here as herbicides. And we all have, you know, you all have heard about, well, you get into cover crops the right way, you can reduce your fertility. And I say that is absolutely true. But how to do that, how to achieve that, the timing of that, that is where it literally comes down to almost, I should say, a field-by-field basis. And when, when you hear someone talk about them reducing their herbicide, or excuse me, their fertility, you need to ask some questions. What are they doing to do that? Typically, I, I see the, the most response on my farm when I use uh, a nice diverse mix, but I will say that I have done, I have seen radishes by themselves do very well. I've seen sun hemp that was planted after wheat, planted corn the next year, single species also require very little fertility. So it doesn't always have to be a mix, but I'm a big fan of mixes. I'm a big proponent of mixes because I think that they do so many things at once in many other aspects of the soil. So let's just talk about a few scenarios here in our approach to thinking about fertility. And I want to be very, very clear that it's different when you have the first year, if you have had a soil that's dead and has been really tilled a lot in the past and just doesn't have much life there, it's going to take some time to get that soil biological factory humming again that, that you can start then to take advantage of fertility. But if you've been in no-till for a while, you've been using cover crops, you've had manure applied you know, regularly or sporadically, Boy, it's not very long with intensive cover crop management that you can significantly reduce your fertility. And I think that is very key to make sure farmers understand that when you're talking about this. And I will say, too, that the best way is for farmers to do their own research. We have GPS. We can lay out replicated plots. And if they're long enough, using a yield monitor is is very, very good for for a farmer to be able to see what they can and cannot do. It is not hard to adjust fertilizer rates on the planter. You just have to spend a little time keeping track of it, putting some flags out, and I'll just, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but uh, I have found if you have the flags ready in your tractor before you hit the field, you get a little marked out there. It does not take much time to lay out some plots and then just adjust the fertilizer. If you're, if you're putting it on with your planter, that makes it easy to be able to do this. So having said that, let's talk about some specifics here. So when we're talking about using a grass cover crop like cereal rye or annual rye grass, and you can list a bunch more probably, they, they use up nitrogen. They, they grow in the spring. They're taking nitrogen out of the soil profile and using it. That's very good. It's keeping it in the soil. But if we're planting corn, we need to assume, especially on a soil that may not have been cover cropped intensively for for a while, that you're going to need more nitrogen on that corn at planting. Again, I'm going to reference back. We have a webinar on this very topic. Uh, soybeans don't need any uh, nitrogen. 
I would just say there, phosphorus and potassium as needed. It's up to you. Pretty much consistently, once we get into a, a pretty uh, a system that matures, less purchase fertility may be needed. That's what I have in the bottom there. So that's why I am <clears throat> I'm trying to really be careful as I share here the difference between transitioning into using cover crops or when you're ready into it. You have to be spend, you have to kind of like earn the right to reduce your purchased fertility. That's how I look at it. And I think that's important for farmers to understand whether you're uh, teaching them and training them or whether you're a farmer yourself. So as we think then about legume cover crops, hairy vetch, crimson clover, and a bunch of others, and there's there's some new ones coming down the pike. We were just talking here before we got on this webinar about some some new new legume cover crops coming. Now this is different in the context of nitrogen management for corn because these legume cover crops are actually producing nitrogen that our corn can use. So it's simply put there less or no nitrogen at planting when you are able to plant corn. And as far as how much you can reduce First of all, what's the background of your uh, of your situation, and you know, how mature is it? And the next question: How big was your cover crop? A smaller cover crop, less nitrogen produced. What time of year is it? A lot of factors go into place. Again, the best way to determine your nitrogen, your fertility, is to do your own research in your own fields. I, I want to really emphasize that here to encourage people to do that. And, and I, I made a, I made a, uh, a, a comment the other day that I actually made the comment without thinking, but sometimes these very, very little things like just getting off your tractor and going and making sure your planter's set right, one minute can return thousands of dollars. In research and in fertility, a few minutes of time can really probably save you thousands of dollars. It could potentially do that. If you're just looking at it from from a, a, a budget standpoint, the the whole thing of management and cover crops is very very important. Soybeans, if they're going into a legume cover crop, would again just basically the P and K that you're after that you're looking at. But again, as the system sures, less fertility is needed, and but you're gonna have to do your own research. And finally, on the on the fertility end of it, I did want to have a, a separate slide here on using brassica cover crops like the radishes in particular, and particularly uh, radishes that are able to grow soon enough in the fall to be able to capture nitrogen. They release their nitrogen early, sometimes too early, and that's why I really prefer a mix within the radishes, but for whatever reason, I just want to say that uh, radishes will release the nitrogen relatively early, and you probably won't need any nitrogen at planting. Now, later on, then you're going to have to put the balance on whatever you need. Uh, but the other thing is radishes do have a, a good ability to pick up sulfur and some other nutrients like phosphorus. That's been proven. We're actually – that has uh, increased phosphorus availability. So – I just put down they might have a starter effect. I have seen a few tests that have actually proven that, but again, that's going to be farmer field specific. So that's something you might want to look into. And, and of course here, soybeans kind of as before P and K is needed. So 
fertility is something that it's, you know, it's not, it, it really shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be something you should be thinking about. And now's the time of year to set up a little field trial. You can go out and measure your field and see how many reps you can maybe do in a field and think about it and, and, and that kind of stuff. And that'll set you up that during the heat of the moment of a busy planning time, you can very quickly do some your own research on your own farm. So finally, on my five points here, I have sign up for cost share. And the reason I included that here in our or in our topic today, because a lot of these signups have to occur months in advance. So even if, if you're really interested in working with the NRCS, they have the EQIP program and the CSP program, and there's sign-up deadlines for that kind of stuff. So, so you need to find out what that is in your local area. Some states have uh, some sign-up call share. Uh, I'll just mention, too, if you haven't heard that uh, th- this isn't a direct uh, cost share for cover crops. It's kind of indirect, but Iowa has uh, initiated a $5 premium reduction if you're planting fields, where it's actually through the crop insurance program for fields that are just new to cover crops. So that's something that you need to check into like right now. The other thing too is there's various watershed organizations. Sometimes these are very targeted for actually not very large areas. Sometimes there's some money comes up. But you have to be in advance to do that. So, so that's just some of the, some of the things for the cost share sign up that you want to be thinking about ahead of time. Well, I promised that I would have a bonus and I, I just put here what I think could be very helpful for, for a lot of reasons. And that is to have a conversation with your landlord about using cover crops. Now's the time to do that, and I don't know when, you know, you, uh, I know that agreements are forged different ways and so forth, but in the winter months, this particular, or maybe sometimes in the summer, to have a conversation, talk to your landlord, tell them what you're, what you would like to do. It, it's, it's almost easier in some cases to convince some landowner, landowners how you are indeed benefiting their asset. However, some landlords are totally opposite. They don't want they want their fields traditional, whatever that is. And uh, but to, there there is a I think I could say a little trend now that's beginning to develop that there is some landlords that are actually requiring or asking for their tenants to use cover crops. But I really think that this is uh, important because uh, some farmers' mentality is they're not going to spend the money investing in cover crops because it's not their land. But if you can have some sort of assurance and support from your land landlord in this, it could actually lock you in to more cover crop use and able to do that. Now, just a, a point that I'd like to share, a little story for myself. Uh, I had never had this happen to me before, but in the past year, I picked up five tracts of land that equivalent, it's a hundred acres total, so it's a lot of little pieces, but five separate landlords, landlords contacted me, all these people knew me, and asked me to farm their fields. The reason being, and I'll just synthesize this, but they basically said, we like the way we farm, we, we hear about what you do, 
we want you to take care of our land. And they did not ask for, I, I am not paying any higher rent than anybody else. Actually, some of them are actually lower than normal. But, you know, that that took me years to get to that point. And, and I had never asked any of these before to rent their land or anything like that. So I just see that as uh, once you get known for being a good steward of the land, you may int- attract some landlords into it. So that's my bonus point for today. So I'll uh, just put up the next slide here about our topic for next week, but I'm going to unmute everybody. So if there's anybody would like to have a question or a comment on what I just talked about, I'll entertain them for a couple minutes and then we'll open it up kind of more for a general cover crop discussion. Unmute your microphone if you care to. And please, I would appreciate any comments or any questions you have about what I just talked about. So uh, who's going to be first? Hey, Steve. This is Stephanie. Yes, Stephanie. I just wanted to make a comment. I just recently went to a uh, conference. uh, I I can't remember what it was for, but uh, we have a uh, researcher here at Purdue University in Indiana. His name is Shalimar Armstrong, Mm -hmm. and he's starting to do some research looking at needed rates of started starter fertilizer in corn after planting cereal rye. So trying to, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, planning ahead and doing these things, but he's also trying to help other people as there more and more people are doing this. He's trying to, again, do some research to kind of help put, I'm not going to say make it more cookie cutter, but to, yeah. to help other people right. that are not as innovative to plan for that process. So right. I like seeing that research going on. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I look at those as they're like spark plug type events where it stimulates other research and uh, and so forth. So that, that's good to hear. Anybody else? I see Jim Horman, you're on. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, joined a little while ago. So, okay. Uh, getting ready to go down to the National Hotel Conference. Yeah, so. I wish I'd be gone there this year, but just decided to, to take the year off and uh, kind of prepare for, for the year ahead here myself. So, I uh, yeah, let us know what you learn. I know there's several others Great. going that way too. So I see uh, Mar- Marcia from uh, from South Dakota is on. Do you have any comments or questions? Nope. This is the first time I've oh, good. been able to get on. Well, so well, I was just I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to have you on. I've been to South Dakota a couple times, and it, it's it's always good to see other parts of the country. And I know that you guys are one of the leaders. Your state's one of the leaders in cover crop movement. So I'm glad to see you're on here. All right, thank you. Do you have any comments or anything or questions? No, not okay. not right now. I guess I don't. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. Well, I see some other people on here. Um, I know. Uh, feel free to feel free to speak up. Andy, are you able to to talk? Andy from Alberta wouldn't mind hearing any comments you have. Or Avery, also see Eric's on here from uh, South Dakota as well. You guys have any comments? Questions? I'm uh, trying to unmute my phone here. Oh, there you go. Well, um, that's that's good. Go ahead, Eric. Okay, how's, how's, is, it, is it warming up in uh, South Dakota like it is the rest of the country? It is. It is briefly, but we got some snow and some cold on the forecast. Okay. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Do you have any? No, you, I just agree with a lot of stuff. Okay. I agree with a lot of the stuff you're saying, especially with the planting cover crops directly after like silage harvest. I mean, that's very important. We see right. that same thing here that yeah. every day that you miss um, planting, you're losing a lot of biomass and a lot right. of growth. So yeah. I think that's what we've come to. And, and uh, same thing with that fertilizer. I mean, we got, we see 
maybe that's a question for you. Maybe you've addressed that in other webinars, but, you know, after a cover crop, we typically have, like, single-digit nitrate levels in our soil uh, test. So we're yeah. typically, if you do the math, we call for a little extra fertilizer, and so uh -huh. we're trying to decide, well, can we can we back that down and it's a field-by-field basis for sure. Yeah, well, as I as I indicated that, you know, the ultimate is to have your own testing in that, but to be able to understand, you know, what kind of a cover crops or what's the balance of the mix in, you know, is it is it lean toward legumes or lean toward grasses? Because sometimes what you plant does, is not what it turns out to be. Uh, I mean, that's just the luck of the weather sometimes that you have to make these judgments on what you actually see in the spring sometimes to adjust your fertility program around that. Uh, a lot of times it hinges on the percentage of legumes and the growth and everything, so... I mean, I mean, that's the thing here that I guess it kind of is what draws me into this whole cover crop thing is it is not an exact science that you could just cookie cutter. It just isn't. But to, to be able to begin to understand the nuances is when you really start to get the benefits. Yeah, anybody else? I see Lauren's on here. You're probably traveling to the no-till conference as well. I don't know if you want to unmute yourself or if you can or not, but. We're bouncing down the highway anyway, heading to Louisville. Okay, is, is Brenda driving or are you driving? We're driving. <laughs> well, good. Do you have any comments? Oh, road warnings. Yeah. Uh, the, the Iowa cover crop thing that you talked about, that is for all cover crop acres, not just new ones. Oh, good. But it has to be self-funded acres. It's not, you know, if you're getting cost share elsewhere, it's ah. not, they're not eligible. Okay, well, thanks for but, clarifying that. I know you uh, you went to the meeting the other day, didn't you? No, uh, I've, I've been behind the scenes talking to him quite a bit. Right. I, I was, I forget what I was doing today in that webinar. Yeah. I'm all 100% signed up. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, okay. I appreciate that insight, Lauren. Let us know what you learned then at the No-Till Conference. I'm sure there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of cover crop topics there, and I know you're going to be sharing as well. So, hey, um, if there's any other any other question at all that you would have, I uh, just want to open that up to that. And now just, you know, for future webinars, if you have anything that you're, that, that you really want to talk about on here or on the Facebook group, and I would really encourage you to, the, to, to be a part of the Facebook group discussion. It's, it's, it's pretty insightful sometimes. So, so I'll just sweep around here and ask, is there any other cover crop question you have at all about any topic in the realm of cover cropping? Yeah, go ahead, Doug. In the, uh, in the archives, in the video archives, did you yeah. ever cover crown vetch as a living cover crop? No, I have not covered crown vetch as a living cover crop. I do know about it. I know here in Pennsylvania, you're probably aware of it. I think it was, what, Nate Hartwig that, that did that back in, what, the 80s and 90s. And I think they were trying to use Emmy corn to try to knock back, knock it back to get the corn established. Is that what, is that what you're referring to, maybe? Yeah, actually it was 70s and 80s. Okay. Well, actually just before we come on, and I don't see uh, Brett Jones is on here anymore, but I'll just say that there is an effort to look into some of that again. This, we had talked about the Cura clover, which is in a way, it's, it, it can be a perennial. And if you're on corn on corn, it could be something that could work. I know that they're working on that. They're they're actually breeding that with a white clover, and he's actually has some out testing right now uh, in Iowa. So it might be something to to keep your eye on there in that regard. So 
to answer your question, no, I haven't talked about living covers. I will just mention right now that it's always a tantalizing topic, but I've just never found anybody who to make it work consistently multiple years. And then what do you do when it gets dry in the spring? I mean, there's been some total crop failures because of that. If you don't have backup irrigation, that is one of the biggest risks that you take. That being said, when things come together and you have decent precipitation, it can be wonderful in reducing your your uh, nitrogen costs and so forth. I know that Dwayne Beck, and I don't know if you guys from South Dakota want to comment on this, but he had been growing some Roundup Ready alfalfa in corn, but that was irrigated. I, I saw it there in Pierre, South Dakota, at his South at the Dakota Lakes Research Station. But that was that was irrigated, and, and he made the comment he wouldn't do it on a non-irrigated situation. So, you guys, uh, yeah, I see Eric or, or or Marcy. I don't know if you know what Dwayne's doing there. You want to comment on living cover crops? Um, I can let Marcia comment, but I, I I just know he was testing it, and I know he's on twenty inch rows. And other than that, I don't know much of the specifics uh, yeah. about it. I guess right and. I think he's doing, I think he's still kind of playing with that. I don't think he's got it quite worked out to his satisfaction yet. You know, I think they're maybe kind of looking at alternating rows, you know, rather than having it between the rows, you know, so I know he's doing a little, I think he's doing a little more mm-hmm. work on that. I don't think he's satisfied yet. Yeah. With, okay. With how, how that's going. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, Good to know. And it's, again, it's one of those things that theoretically it, it sounds plausible, but it's just not been consistent enough. So I guess that's my response, Doug, to that, to that right now. Does anybody else have any comments on, on that? I'll, I'll just follow up and say I'm a little bit more intrigued now with what we're, what's beginning to be called companion cropping, where you're even growing uh, multiple cash crops simultaneously together. Uh, obviously there's, there, there's some areas of the country that are a little bit more where, where they have different uh, cash crops that that, that can complement themselves, and also in actually growing cover crops for seed, this has been showing some promise. I am not sure how it will be worked with corn and soybeans, but I know that people like Lauren on here and and some of our other innovative members like Andy and. Even uh, Derek Axton and them up in Saskatchewan are looking at companion cropping, growing multiple species as a cash crop. I'm even trying in my own way here. I have 14 acres of an oil seed rape, hairy vetch and pea mix in the ground right now. The oil seed rape for me is a cash crop. The hairy vetch and the peas are cover crop seeds. So they're all three growing simultaneously. The reason that we think it can work, and I've already tested this last year at a small scale, is that we can actually separate those seeds and then market them because of the seed size differential. So that's more intriguing me right now, the whole concept of companion cropping is what we're calling it. So I see Lauren typed in here, the companion cropping is the word of the day for his talk on Friday at Louisville. So yeah, I, I hope to hear uh, more about that, Lauren. That's, uh, yeah, I know that you're you're looking at it, but that's that's kind of the... One of the new topics that come up here this past year that we really want to look into. Any other comments on that specifically, or anyone have another question? Well, I don't like to wait around. I'll just ask uh, if there's any other questions, uh, please speak up now. If if not, we're going to wrap it up. So is there any other questions? 
Well, thank you for your time today. Look forward to this coming year. I got a lot of cool things planned and appreciate your support in this. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week.